Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, a conversation with a Ukrainian journalist who is pursuing a reckoning of war crimes in her country. Today I'm talking with Svetlana Oslavska, who's a Ukrainian journalist who was the subject of a recent piece CGR published in our authoritarian issue that was out a few weeks ago. She's joining us on the line from Ukraine, where she's reporting and documenting war crimes for something called the Reckoning Project. The basis of the project is to document witness testimonies on the ground in Ukraine of Russian war crimes. Her work on the project began as a story about hundreds of Ukrainians who were held for a month in a school basement by the Russians. Several of them died from lack of oxygen and other reasons. And Svetlana's story documented this both for Time magazine, uh, which is where the piece ran, as well as for the Reckoning Project. Svetlana talks to us about the story, about the conditions of the people in that basement, but also about how reporting for war crimes prosecution differs from traditional journalism and how actually her journalism has benefited from that. I'm really happy to have Svetlana on the line. Welcome to The Kicker. Um, Svetlana, thank you so much. Um, can you, where are you right now and what have you been doing for the last uh, couple of weeks reporting-wise? Are you in Kyiv? Uh, no, I'm I'm based in the city that's called Ivano-Frankivsk, and it's in the western part of Ukraine. Let's say it's um, two hours driving from Lviv. But originally, I'm from the eastern part of Ukraine, from uh, Severodonetsk town. Now it's uh, under Russian occupation, and obviously, I cannot go back. And my family also came to Ivano-Frankivsk, and we are together now. Tell me, what were you doing um, before Russia invaded Ukraine? What was the focus of your work? Uh, yes, I'm a journalist and I'm mostly working on long-form texts. So I'm also a writer and published two books of uh, non-fiction books. When I tried to uh, describe like what's, what's my focus, like what I'm writing about in my life, the focus was just, you know, about people, about uh, humans. Uh, I didn't write about some only political issues or like health issues, you know, was this very broad from one point of view uh, topic, but uh, it can be narrowed in many ways. So yeah, I was doing this uh, and also working um, kind of part-time in one magazine that's called Kritika magazine. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm doing editing there of the book review section. I'm continuing doing this since the invasion started with some a break, but still continuing. What's the status of the magazine now? It exists. It's con it continues to publish. I mean, it's a very very small part of my time that I dedicate. And also, I have to mention, of course, the Reckoning Project, the document of the war crimes, was maybe the main uh, thing that I was involved um, in this first year of after invasion started and and continue to work in it. Yeah. I want to ask you about the Reckoning Project in a second. Let's get back to that story published in Time um, of the people who were held in the basement by these Russian troops. Talk to me about um, that village and what you learned happened to those people. Yeah, so that's a very small community. It's uh, 400 people uh, before the invasion. And it's located quite close to Chernihiv, that is the regional center. And that means that 
Many people worked in the city, they were coming, commuting and coming back. And at the same time, uh, it keeps all like the traces of a Ukrainian village where you have people who work on the land. Everyone has some small uh, piece of land uh, with uh, some vegetables, some tomatoes they're growing, or they have small, small garden and they like gardening. Because this village, Yahidne, if you translate this in English, it would be like a place of berries. And mm -hmm. it's called like this because there was some um, kind of an institution that is not operating now, but uh, in late Soviet times and in nine in the 90s, there was this um, place where they um, had many, many orchards, many gardens with apples. So this thing is uh, traditional for people to do. So you can say this is, you know, quiet place, small place, surrounded by forest and engaged in this very peaceful activity of doing gardening mm -hmm. yeah and on the 3rd of march 2022 russians came uh, to this village and people just suddenly saw uh, the military vehicles that were marked with the circle and they knew that the circle means russian armies and this day it started for them uh, the russian occupation because on the 5th of march the russians came to almost every house and they forcefully took the people took uh, people to the basement of a local school um, it was you know like a storage for something for a very dusty place that was just closed before maybe but the school was operating before the war it was the school and the kindergarten in one so the whole village in this basement uh, there were there was around half of a square meter for every person a very small space so people were kept there day and night and at night they also couldn't uh, lie down they had to sleep while sitting it's very hard to to describe because i talked to several dozens of people but still i think that i cannot imagine fully what happened there but what people tell uh, this is just terrible like Russians were around the school and in the school. They made their headquarters in the school. So the school was surrounded by their military vehicles and by soldiers and civilians, 368 civilians, 69 children among them were in the basement. They were allowed to go only to the toilet because the toilet was outside of the school. It's about like 20 meters from the door from the basement. So every morning they, there was a line of people who were waiting to use the toilet and Russians didn't give them water or food. People had to invent how they can feed themselves in such a situation, how they can, um, where they can get water. Uh, and they were creative, let's say, and they found a ways. But the thing is that um, this uh, soldiers and commanders, they didn't care about how to feed people, how to feed all the civilians and the elderly. There were sick people, elderly people, children. And as a result, 10 people died. Russians didn't allow to take dead people out of the basement. For example, if this happened in at night or in the evening, and the door of the basement was closed, uh, people were not allowed to take these dead people outside. So they had to spend, let's say, the whole night and the morning until the Russians will open the door with the dead people. And so I don't know, it's uh, probably hard to imagine. There was no light in the basement. Only in the last days of this uh, uh, captivity, uh, Russians allowed for people to make some electricity inside. So no ventilation, no light. 
nasen, no space, mm, and there were such a small children like uh, four months, I think, or maybe the smallest one was a month and a half, something like that. How long were they there for? Was uh, almost for the whole month. So if fifth of March, they were. Uh, it was the first day. And the last day was the 30th of March, yeah, when the Russians like went out of the village. They didn't let people out. They just left with all their vehicles, all their tanks. And people were closed in the basement, closed from the outside. They cannot open the door. They were sitting inside and they heard that there was nobody around. And they, when they felt finally, okay, we are safe maybe and we can open the door, then several men, they just removed the door. They went out and they saw that there is nobody around. There's no Russians probably. Then they checked their houses in the village because in there was a headquarters in the school and in the village, in every house, in almost every house, also Russian soldiers lived. So they robbed the houses, they made total mess, uh, they took everything that was valuable, like uh, laptops or money with them. People checked the houses, they saw no Russians, and then they felt safe. And um, the next day, 31st of March, then the Ukrainian army um, came to the village. And that was the end of the sad story. Let's say the end of this phase, because the um, people suffered such you know situation that you feel not the results, not the conclusions, but afterwards, it's not easy to um, to get back to normality, maybe. And and when did you arrive in in the village to report the story? The first time was uh, in August. There was a family that hosted a family from Yahidne that hosted two women who were not from Yahidne, but they happened to be in the village, and this family hosted them, and so they were like all the time together in one room in the basement, keeping close to each other, and they became friends, and now. They say that they are really like good friends. They uh, send invitations, uh, uh, greetings uh, for Thursdays. And that day, it was half a year after deliberation, uh, and they had some kind of barbecue together. So these two, mm -hmm. two women, they came to the village and the local family, they gathered together and they allowed us journalists to, to be with them, to hear to them, to observe. Uh, yes, this was the first visit. Um, and what's the status of the village now? Has it been? Has, have the Russians been back, or that once they left, they were gone? No, they are gone because it's, this was um, in, like Chernihiv region, Kyiv region, and Sumy region. There was there were the regions in the north and northeast of Ukraine, and Russians retreated on late March, early April, like first of April, thirty first of March. So they retreated and. The, they did not come back. So um, after that, uh, the village and the villagers, they were coming back to their normal life. Of course, many people didn't come back. They live in Europe, some of them, some of them maybe in other cities of Ukraine, but many, many came back um, because they have their houses and all their lives. And they came back, they started to renovate the house because the windows were broken, the doors were destroyed uh, some of the houses they were burnt because some sh shell hit them uh, and now seven houses are under renovation or reconstruction with the financial support from uh, Latvia I think if I'm not mistaken 
So how did you, you were there for the, for the first time, Look, sounds like about five months after they were freed. And, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly traumatic experience that they went through, awful. How did you find them in terms of your conversations with them? Sort of, how, how did you approach interviewing them knowing that they had been so traumatized? Um, you know, you never know if someone is traumatized. Of course, we uh, understand that if people's, if persons uh, lived through something very difficult, it uh, somehow influenced his or her mind. Yeah, but we cannot uh, say directly like mm-hmm. if you lived through this, you are traumatized because maybe uh, they are not. So trauma mm-hmm. is something that can be diagnosed, but. Uh, as a journalist, I cannot uh, make such a conclusion, mm-hmm. such a diagnosis. So um, all the people that I talked to, I cannot say that they had this uh, post-traumatic uh, disorder because, for example, they were very good in n- narration of chronological events. Like they mm-hmm. could reconstruct what happened. And if person has this trauma, one of the symptoms is the person cannot uh, chronologically describe what happened and we talked to them to every person we talked like what happened by day by day how you get to know that the Russians are in the village what did you do how they came to your house how did they look like what did they say to you and you know we had this long interviews because we uh, did this interviews not only for the publication but also for documenting them as the witnesses of the war crimes. And that's why the conversations were very detailed. And although we were not the first journalists who came to the village, right away after the liberation in April, the situation became, let's say, famous. Yes, and many journalists came to Yahin, and not only journalists, prosecutors, and uh, many people asked uh, the same people about what happened to them. I wasn't the first person to talk to them about this, but I talked to them quite a long time. Probably for many of them, this was the longest conversation they had. I felt that they feel quite okay with this. They needed to maybe tell, you know, very detailed what happened. And if a person sees that somebody is listening attentively, then person is ready to open and and tell. But of course, such an invasion, let's say, by the word, but uh, this visits of journalists, many journalists from the whole world, like if you ask people in Yahidne uh, to remember like what journalists visited them, they would say Norway, Iraq, uh, you know, not only just American journalists or French or German, like from different countries. Uh, and they know these people, they, they say, they said to me, like, we understand that we have to tell these stories Although maybe we don't want to tell them for the tenth time because it's a lot, but still we understand that the world has to know and we understand our responsibility and that's why mm, we tell. But from the other hand, after the talk, uh, one woman told me, like, you talk to journalists and you feel okay, but after they leave, you have this wave of memories and it's hard to stop them. Yes, and for several days, you have maybe this, you memorize what happened to you, but the journalists are already left. And uh, in this uh, case, maybe it's good to journalists to come back when they have a, a possibility, because sometimes uh, people have to add something to what they said during the first interview. Mm. So did this become, this this case become part of your work with the Reckoning Project? Yes, yes, obviously. 
that's the biggest one. So how how do you um well before we get into I'm really interested in like whether the way you do this reporting is different than if you weren't involved with this project. But before we get into that, just talk to us about what the goal of the Reckoning Project is and why you were attracted to it. Yeah, so the Reckoning Project is a collective of journalists and editors and the legal experts. And there are two, three main goals. One is documenting war crimes. So we take interviews that are witness statements and then we transcribe them uh, they are translated into english and then our legal team is working on them preparing them to be cases in the court and another uh, direction of this um, of, of the reckoning is making uh, articles or documentary movies in the world media so the biggest, I would say, it's two goals is one is documenting and another one is publishing. Why it's uh, important to do together? Because if you only document, yes, it stays in the archive. But from the other hand, if you only publish, journalistic materials cannot be used as witness statements. And there's the difference. Uh, as a journalist, you may be asked slightly different questions. As a documenter of the war crimes, you ask more detailed questions and you always ask the questions that maybe were not asked by journalists, like in, describe how exactly these Russians looked like, what um, insignia they had, what uniform uh, they had, what color, what was written on their chevrons, uh, were their face covered, because often they covered their identity. How they were addressed like do, do you know their names or ranks usually people don't know their names they know only nicknames because russians are covering their identity so you ask this question that would help to find who were these people and uh, just you just ask more detail like for example as a journalist if a person tells you for instance uh, my hands and my eyes were um, Tied, yeah. As a journalist, you probably will not ask with what exactly, but as a documenter of war crimes, you should ask how your hands were tied, like in front of you or in the back of you, and with what exactly, with a rope, what color of this rope. And sometimes people say rope, but in fact, it's not a rope, but a plastic, and you have to understand what exactly was it. So there's such many details. Do you think it's changed the way you report in a way that will stay even once you do work that's not part of this project? Not all these details, they go in the final reportage, mm -hmm. of course, in every work, like if you are doing some reportage that 80, 70% stays out of the text, you cannot include everything. Mm -hmm. But this is a good um, kind of school for me to ask more, because sometimes when you ask these questions that you ask as a documenter, you get the answers that are very interesting for you as a journalist. And you wouldn't get these answers if you don't ask these questions. Sometimes so the answers that you get, they are not that you expected, but they are very valuable for you, for your story. There's some detail that can be very, very good for your story that will show the atmosphere of uh, the place of the situation. I'm curious sort of how you think of like, what defines, I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, before you were reporting in this war and before you started becoming part of this project, I mean, I assume that your 
definition of what made a successful story was, you know, telling a story well, you know, being convinced that you really conveyed what was happening, having an audience that connects with it. These are the sort of markers of traditional kind of journalistic success, usually. I'm, I'm wondering whether your markers or like whether that's changed. Like, will you view these stories as being less than satisfying if nothing comes of this war crimes work? Or do you view them separately? Or how do you think about it? It's like for now, um, it's in the process, you know, if something will come out of this work uh, as a court decision, uh, we will see it. But um, I'm sure that like I I don't feel the instant change, you know, in the world uh, after um, the article was published. But of course, this is one small piece that adds to the full picture of, of people in the world who know about it. And it's good because although about this Yahidne case, it was told many times in many for many audiences by many media. But still, there are people in the world who don't know about it. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it's not uh, bad to tell the story in uh, in one more media, and people, local people, after this story got published, they also feel like uh, since it's, it appeared in some important publication that they have some feeling that their suffering was, uh, you know, it's not that the suffering was more important, but maybe that the justice will come with bigger probability than it was otherwise. So what are you working on now? Uh, Again, mm, I'm finishing one text uh, that's also based on the uh, witness statements. Uh, In uh, late autumn, I was uh, in Kharkiv region. Uh, uh, This region was um, uh, liberated in uh, September. And... um, I went there in one small town and in villages around and recorded stories of what happened to people. And there was one story of a young guy who was taken um, by Russians and just from his home, uh, they came and said, come with us. And they took him to to a detention center for 76 days. And they, for all these two and a half months, they didn't... uh, tell him why uh, they just asked him why tell us why you're here yeah but um, he didn't do anything wrong and they didn't tell him what happened Mm, he was released I think due to his mom and uh, his uh, girlfriend efforts because they were going visiting all the Russian militaries in the town and just begging them please let our um, son and our boyfriend uh, let him go uh, according to how they tell the story he was released thanks to their efforts mm-hmm. um, and that was it you know and this mother it's kind of absurd feeling for her because when he was released she came to this place to the detention center and talked to one of the milit- Russian military who was responsible for this detention center and he didn't tell her why he said, I came here later. I didn't took him. I didn't detain him. So I don't know. And she was like, oh, 76 days, my son was absent in, in a terrible conditions. He was free and no, no explanation, no justice. Mm-hmm. And this is just one of the stories. And there are many of such stories. Uh, in uh, Just in this small town, I recorded, I think, seven stories of people were just taken from their homes 
also women, not only men. And it, it shows like the atmosphere of like this fear and terror and unlawfulness that was created in the occupied territory. And yeah, so this is the text that I'm working on now, although I recorded these interviews half a year ago, but still this, um, you know, uh, universal feeling of this story that's a mother and a son and mother is searching for her son and she doesn't know where to find him because it was hard for her to define like where, where is the detention center it's not in this town it was in another town uh, so um, this this story was interesting to me because of this uh, universal let's say feeling of it Svetlana thank you so much it was great to talk to you Thanks again to Svetlana for joining us. Again, you can read our coverage of democracy and journalism in our recent authoritarian issue, which is where her work has been highlighted. And follow everything else going on in the world of journalism and the world in general on CGR.org and through our daily email newsletter, The Media Today. We'll see you here next week.